Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Manya Brashear-Pashman. This episode pays tribute to our nation's veterans. Guest hosting is my colleague, Dr. Dana Levinson-Steiner, Director of Access Global at AJC, where she oversees an international program to engage young professionals. In that group are a number of Jewish military veterans who have served in the American Armed Forces. Dana, the mic is yours. Thanks, Manya. I'm so happy that we're here today. It was just over two years ago that we formed the Access Jewish Military Veterans Affinity Group which is a space for us to convene young Jewish professionals who have served in the American military. And here we are now, today, recording our first People of the Pod podcast episode in honor of and commemorating Veterans Day. With us today are Dave Warnock, U.S. Army veteran, joining us from his home in Seattle, Washington, and Andrea Goldstein, U.S. Navy veteran and reservist who is based in Washington, D.C. Dave, Andrea, thanks for joining us today. Happy to be here, Dana. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. To kick off the conversation, please tell us a little bit about your journey as American Jewish military veterans. What inspired you to join the United States Armed Forces? Dave, let's start with you. For me, there are two kind of main things when I look back on what propelled me to join the U.S. Army. The first one was my great-grandfather, Saul Fink. The family legend is he emigrated over from the shtetl. His family settled in Harlem. And when he heard about what was going on in Texas at the time in 1916, 1914, with the Pancho Villa incursions, he felt so propelled by patriotism and love of America that he had to run away from home and enlist at 16 years old, which he did. Joined the horse cavalry, a proper Jewish cowboy chasing after Pancho Villa into Mexico in a forgotten war. And he made sort of a career out of the army. That's the legend that he was propelled by patriotism. Maybe he hated the tenement. Maybe he just wanted to go to Harlem, get some fresh air, see the American West. I don't know. But his service propelled him forward in American society through the U.S. Army in a way that I think would have been unavailable to a lot of Jews at the time. It's not to say that it was an easy journey. He was certainly discriminated against. He shortened his name from Finkelstein to Fink for reasons that are not kind of lost to history. One joke is that it couldn't fit on the name tag. But through this service, he was elevated in society. He became an officer in World War I. He served through World War II and in the Army of Occupation in Germany. And his stature of sort of the patriarch of my family, like, loomed large. My middle name is Solomon. I'm named after him. So that kind of, like, tradition was part of it. Another part was I enlisted in 2004, so three years after 9-11 when I was a freshman in high school. And that terrorist attack really did cement my decision to serve. You know, if that didn't happen, I don't know what I would have done differently. But those are the two main reasons that propelled me to join. And I joined the Army and I volunteered for the infantry because I wanted to be a soldier. In a lot of ways, it is our family that inspires us to make these kinds of decisions. And we learn so much from our family history and our family lineage. And Andrea, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your journey, too. And I'm curious if family played a role in your decision to join the Navy. 
my family decision to join the military was much more related to growing up in the United States, growing up in New York at a time, actually, probably when we didn't have the NYPD outside of synagogues and didn't really think about being Jewish, at least in New York in the 90s. But my family came here in mostly two waves, most in the early 20th century and then another wave right before the Holocaust and found everything they were looking for. And I was, depending on which wave, either the second generation or the third generation, where a sense of precarity in being American was gone. We just were American Jews. And I am currently sitting in a home that has embroidery on the wall that was sent to my great-grandmother by family members who ended up, who perished in the Shoah. This country really gave us everything and I wanted to give back to that. The value of tikkun olam is very central to everything that I do. And so serving my country and wearing the cloth of the nation to me felt like really the only way to do that. 9-11 was not a motivating factor for me, despite growing up in New York City and being in New York City on 9-11. My desire to serve in uniform predated that. In fact, 9-11 um, led me to really not so much reconsider, but but really give even more thought to my military service because I knew I would be serving in conflict zones, which with the peacetime military of the 90s, that wasn't clear. But I ended up joining through an officer program. Um, I didn't initially have any family support because it was such a shocking choice. I had great grandparents who'd served during World War II and great uncles, but not from a military family at all. And what became very understood by my family because it was what was motivating me was this desire to serve my country and wear the cloth of the nation no matter what. I want to pivot a little bit. I want to get back to questions of Jewish identity in a moment. But when we're thinking about American Jews serving in the U.S. Armed Forces, while there isn't a ton of data, the most recent-ish data suggests that just about 1% of the U.S. Armed Forces or the U.S. military is made up of American Jews. It's tiny, only 1%. And that 1% is of an already really small number of American Jews who already live in this country. So, you know, thinking about this statistic and also acknowledging American history in serving in the military, what do we make of this small number? And what would you like to tell young American Jews who may be considering joining the military but may have doubts or concerns? So there are a couple of things I would say to that. I would comment on that data. First of all, that's only commenting that that only includes self-reported numbers because we don't collect demographic data on, it's seen as completely religious affiliation. The military does not collect demographics on Jews as being an ethnic group. So it's actually quite difficult to self-report your religion. So there's going to be an undercount. There are people who are Jewish who may even practice privately who are not reporting. And it also doesn't capture Jewish families. So 
it doesn't capture the number of people who may be not Jewish themselves, but their partner and spouse is Jewish and they're raising Jewish children and they're observing Jewish holidays with their families. So there's a lot that we really don't know. What I would also say is if you were to overlay where the military struggles to recruit from with the parts of the country where most Jews live in the United States, you would see probably some very interesting geographic trends. Um, The military has become a family business. There have been some comforts that the military has had in where they recruit from. And that typically is not New York, Los Angeles, Miami, Chicago, Washington, D.C., So in addition to being one of the very few Jews that I know in the military, I think I know probably even fewer people from New York City, especially officers. Dave, I'm I'm curious your thoughts on some of these numbers and also maybe what you would tell. You and I have talked about this before, about wanting to really engage in conversation with young American Jews about this experience and what it can mean for them. You know, acknowledging this number, while not perfect, I would imagine it's not so massive. So tell us a little bit about what you think and also maybe what you would tell a young American Jew who might be considering enlisting. First off, my mom was also very surprised when I joined, perplexed, flummoxed, aggrieved perhaps. She would have much rather me not join the army. But I just have to get that out there because she's certainly going to listen to this. Yeah, so I don't know where that number comes from. You know, the infantry is a different representation. I would say Jews were less than 1% of the infantry. But when I was at basic training, like for one station unit training, as they called it back then, after your red phase, like your hell phase or whatever you want to call it, you were allowed to go to religious services on Sunday. And so I went to Jewish services on Sunday because, you know, it is the army. And I went to Jew, like in my basic training company, there were no other Jews. So companies like 200 guys. And then when I go to religious services, there were all of a sudden like 200 guys there. I'm like, oh my God, why are there so many Jews all of a sudden in every company in Fort Benning except for mine? And then I realized it's because they served Kiddush lunch and you could get snacky cakes after services. And it turns out there were like three actual Jews at the services. I had a completely different experience in officer candidate school where we were allowed to leave on Friday nights. Oh, interesting. Dave, what was your experience? Uh, So, again, this is like 2005. Things might have changed. But when you joined a combat arms, like the infantry, you just went to one station unit training, and it was a fairly intense experience. Think about full metal jacket, whatever, people screaming at you, doing lots of push-ups. And all your time is blocked out and accounted for. So you trained on Saturdays, and religious service time was Sunday morning. That's the time you got. So if you wanted to go to services, you just had to do that. Something to consider if you join certain aspects of the military is religious accommodations will be difficult. You know, I served with guys who were vegetarian, and there's one vegetarian MRE. You ate that a lot, or like our rations for the field. So you'd eat that vegetarian ration a lot, get real used to it. So I believe that is a consideration. And it would be difficult to be religiously observant in the infantry. I actually, there was one guy in my company on the latter half of my service who was a religious Jew. And he basically got a lot of exceptions by his rabbi to serve because it was hard. The army would accommodate him to an extent. Like, for example, we had to shave every day. And so he was allowed to use an electric razor. But 
It's something to consider if you are religious that serving in the U.S. military will be challenging. But, you know, I encourage people to consider it. Like, you know, I don't regret my service. It's difficult to imagine my adult life without it. I'd say I'm proud of it, too. But it carries costs. You know, when I was 19 on my first tour in Iraq, I was wounded. It took me six months to recover and get back to the line. The almost five years I was in, I rarely saw my family because, you know, I was stationed in Germany and deployed to Iraq twice. So it was like I was overseas essentially for the entire time of my service. And that's something to consider. But this is all my perspective. But the experiences you get will propel you forward in life in a way that I don't think you get through other things, certainly when you're 18, uh, when I was. That being said, you know, a lot of soldiers in my unit did die in combat. A lot of guys, when they got out, they did struggle with PTSD and suicide. So it's not all sunshine and roses, but for me, it was the right decision. I mean, military service is really incredible. My field does have more Jewish folks, especially in the reserves where I'm still serving. What's been very interesting is as an intelligence officer, the active duty component doesn't have a lot of Jewish people, but the reserve component, my last unit, we had enough people to have a minyan in a unit of 50 people. And I have found, similarly to just living in society, I mean, your exercises are not, we're going to have exercises that take place during Rosh Hashanah. You're going to be deployed around Christian holidays so that people can be home for Christmas. Maybe you'll be lucky if that's around Hanukkah. But I've also found people to, who I've worked with to be incredibly accommodating up until up to the extent that they can. So maybe I was going to be away for Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur, but people would change their shifts with me on watch so that I could run the service because I was the lay leader or so that I could break my fast at the end of Yom Kippur. And I experienced people being really curious and asking a lot of really good, in good faith questions. And I've had incredible experiences that range from serving with a lot of incredible, not just our military, but partner militaries. The most rewarding was my time with NATO, where um, I got to teach in Norway and Greece and in Sweden and get to have these incredible experiences with people as, actually the Germans all noticed my last name, which was really interesting. And that's a whole other story. But you also see things that you can't experience anywhere else. And it's not just the, I saw a meteor shower in the middle of the ocean on my 26th birthday from a ship. There's certain experiences that you don't think about when you're going into the profession of arms, but you will get to experience these incredibly vibrant experiences just because you've made this choice to go where no one else does. And so it's incredibly rewarding. I've also found that as a millennial, I mean, there are some very realistic things about the economic environment that we graduated into. And because of my military service, I have no debt and I own a home. I have a master's degree that the GI Bill pay for it. So there's some other things there too. Absolutely. And I can only imagine what that experience was like for you when you were in it and when you've been out of it and what creating a community of people who've gone through this experience understand. I want to lean into something that you mentioned, and I I want to ask the same thing of Andrea, and then I want to talk a little about Jewish identity for a second, which is that you talked about sort of the things that you learned and the experience that you got as a young person. Dave, tell us maybe a little bit about some of the more rewarding experiences or things that were really profoundly important to you in your service? 
Yeah, I got out when I was 23, so 13 years ago now. And memories are once so vivid that I thought I would never forget have <laughs> kind of uh, faded away a little bit. But one thing that I'll never forget that was quite challenging is that after I was wounded, I was like kind of serving in the rear, just like in like a limited duty capacity, like back in my garrison. It was a tough tour. You know, lots of us got wounded. We had lots of members of our battalion killed. And I was asked by chain of command, as much as one can be asked in the military, to uh, escort a soldier's body back to his parents and to his burial in uh, Arlington Cemetery. And I did that. And that was, I can't even like describe just what that moment felt like to do that, to be present there as kind of like a unit liaison. I didn't know the soldier. We were in different companies. But that is something I'll never forget, like actually escorting a soldier back to his parents. Another memory I'll never forget is like, because I have a photo of it and it's on the wall in our living room, is the photo of me and my fire team. I was a sergeant on my second tour. And so I led a small unit of four guys. And we took a picture when we were leaving Iraq for the last time. And just that sense of accomplishment of everyone came home safe from my team on that tour. That's why it's hung up on my wall. It's, you know, we're smiling, we're happy, we're, we're leaving. Those are two things that tend to stand out in my service. So, Andrea, you started off by saying that the value of Tikkun Olam, repairing the world, is one of the things that really guides you. And what I want to ask both you and Dave is, how has your identity as a Jew also shaped your experience as a veteran? We talked a little bit in the beginning about your experiences as Jews or maybe your family being involved in the military, not being involved, being surprised. Tell us a little bit about how your identity as a Jew has shaped your experience as a military veteran and as someone who served in our armed forces. So I left active duty in 2016 and stayed in the reserves, but left full-time service because I felt like I had reached a ceiling on what I could really do for others and that be my full-time job. I wanted to keep serving. I wanted to keep serving my country. But a lot of that actually had to do with the way that I saw a lot of my teammates being mistreated by systemic issues, whether they be cultural or policy. And I wanted to spend a lot more of my time actively putting more good into the world versus preventing bad things from happening. Because that's what you do in the military, especially if you're in intel. You try to stop the bad. You don't do anything that actively promotes the good. And so I've spent the last seven years in my civilian career, either in nonprofit or public service, doing just that. And about half of that time has been either actively helping veterans, particularly women veterans and people who have experienced sexual violence or other kinds of institutionalized harm, and currently serving members of the military. And... I also firmly believe that our institutions need to live up to the ideals that we profess. And I want our nation to represent the ideals that my family came here believing it had. And so that's what I've been doing with my time. I spent two and a half years on the House Veterans Affairs Committee and helped write over 100 laws that particularly supported women veterans, member of the LGBTQ community, sexual trauma survivors, people living with PTSD, to help them get improved access to healthcare and benefits. And I'm also very proud that I've also had the opportunity to work with the IDF and provided some insight into the way that we've made some policy changes here in the U.S. Dave, tell us a little bit about your Jewish identity and how it plays into this experience. 
Well, my unit was very diverse in many ways, not gender, because the unit was closed to, or at the time the MOS was closed to female, so the unit was, or the job was all male. And, you know, part of the pipeline and being new and being a private is your identity is kind of like stripped away, melted down, you're built up as part of this team, like your individuality, individualism is kind of knocked away. So when that process happens, you know, whatever is the most like forefront of your identity kind of consumes it in a sense that like if you have a very pronounced Southern accent, everyone's going to call you a country guy or whatever. And if you're from New York, there's a guy from Queens, like everything about him became like, you're the New York guy. And for me, it was like, I was the Jew because I was like the most forefront and center thing of my identity. Also, when you shave my head, I have a really big head. So all my nicknames were either about having a big head or being a Jew. Uh, And then eventually when I was allowed to grow my hair back, it settled more on the latter. So it was always very central to my service because that was me. I was like the company's guy who was Jewish. And that was not met in a derogatory term. It was more of just like a statement of fact. And I think the only thing I really had to overcome was like in 2005, when you're serving with people, like when I said it was diverse, so you're serving with people from all over the country, the U.S. territories, like guys from parts of the South I've never heard of, guys from the center of the country, place I've never been, soldiers from Puerto Rico and Guam, like all over the world are serving in the U.S. Army. And then we have immigrant soldiers from, you know, Colombia, Nicaragua, uh, Vietnam. Like it was a very wide swath of representation and not very many of them had even met a Jew before. So in a way, I was like the first Jew a lot of them had ever met. And I think, you know, rewind back to 2005, if you don't know anything about Jews, you probably know like Woody Allen and Jerry Seinfeld, which are not exactly like pictures of like guys you want in a foxhole with you. So I had to sort of maybe work a little harder to prove myself in the basic soldiering tasks, but like that didn't take very long. And a lot of guys asked me questions about Judaism because they genuinely didn't know. And I think one of the benefits of my service is these guys take back their experiences with me, which I hope are positive, and then like go back to wherever they're from. And they're like, if Judaism or Jews comes up, they're like, hey, I served with a Jewish guy. He was pretty cool. But I think that was very important to me and why it's so important for Jews to continue military service, because you just meet people from all over the country that you never would have met before. And it broadened my experiences too, serving with those guys. I think hearing the story about how in many cases you might have been the first Jew that these folks have met is really important. I think in a lot of ways it helps to demystify or in most important cases, maybe even act against anti-Semitic ideas or stereotypes. So I think that that's really important. And Dave, you and I have talked over the years about how the term of calling you a Jew was like a term of endearment. It wasn't a term of anti-Semitism. And in spending a lot of my time with this Access Military Veterans Group, I've gotten to learn some of the interesting elements of how you communicate and what that can look like. I have just one more question for us, and I think it's really important to acknowledge this moment that we're in. On October 7th, uh, Israel experienced one of the most horrific tragedies in its 75-year history. It was and continues to be a horrific day for Israelis and the Jewish community around the world. As of today's recording, over 300 soldiers have been killed and tens of thousands have been called up for active and reserve duty. So a question I have for both of you is, what is a message that you have or that you can share 
Jewish veteran to Jewish veteran. And I should even say just veteran to veteran, because one of the amazing things about Israel is that there are many who serve in the IDF and who've been called up for reserve duty or who are in active duty who are not Jewish. They're part of the Druze community. They're Arab Israelis. And I think that's really what makes Israel such a remarkable country. So tell us a little bit about perhaps your reactions to that day and also a message that you have for your fellow soldiers in Israel. Um, I'm struggling to react because the horror, um, rage, I'm just going to start crying on this podcast and not be able to actually give words. Um, I was actually in touch on WhatsApp with several women who I've had the opportunity to work with who are veterans and reservists in the IDF. And there's definitely this kind of secret community of women around the world who have served in combat roles, even if they weren't in combat occupational specialties in their countries where we know what we did and our services has often gone unacknowledged and erased. And that service is also particularly called upon during the most desperate times, which we are in now. And the message that I have is we see you, we're with you, and want to run towards chaos with you. Thank you so much, Andrea. Dave? I mean, I can't say anything that hasn't already been said. You know, shock, anger. My wife and I are expecting our first child soon, and I didn't think you know, we'd be having a a daughter be worried about like, I just thought ignorantly that these sort of things were perhaps in the past. All I can say to those who are going to go serve is, you know, keep your head on a swivel, watch out for your battle buddy. All the things we used to say to each other then are still true now. Thank you. I think just knowing that you are in community with them and that they have love and support is so powerful. And as I think both of you know our access chapters are all over the world, including in Israel, where a huge number of our access leaders have been called up for active and reserve duty. So we're thinking of them in this moment. And we're thinking of all soldiers as we approach Veterans Day. And we're so grateful for the two of you sharing your story with us and sharing your time with us and giving a voice to the more than 1%, we will hope, of American Jewish veterans and perhaps even encourage some folks who may have been thinking that this is something that's been on their mind. Maybe perhaps it might be the moment for them to lean into that journey as a Jewish member of our armed forces. So thank you both for joining us, wishing you a restful and restorative weekend and Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you. Thank you so much. Shabbat Shalom. What would you do if your son was kidnapped by Hamas? If you missed last week's episode, be sure to tune in for my heartfelt conversation with John Poland and Rachel Goldberg, the parents of 23-year-old Hirsch Goldberg Poland. They shared what they know about their son's abduction from the Supernova Music Festival on October 7th and the challenges they face in trying to secure his rescue. Hamas terrorists are holding more than 240 hostages from more than 30 countries, which the couple describes as a global humanitarian crisis that world leaders are not treating as such. They shared ways that we all can keep the hostages' stories alive and bring them home. Go to AJC.org slash bring them home to do your part. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. 
or learn more at AJC.org slash people of the pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at AJC.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, and hop on to Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.